as Sean has said, we've come to the end of our reading through Acts, and today we're going to read together some of the most dramatic passages in the Bible. They come across with great force and immediacy, particularly because they're written by an eyewitness, the doctor and historian Luke. And in last week's reading, Michael and Mary led us in that reading and we heard how Paul was arrested on a trumped-up charge of inciting a riot and how a plot to kidnap and kill him was foiled by getting him to Caesarea um, by um, taking him down there with a very heavy military escort. <laughs> okay. So, um, in the first part of today's reading, we'll hear Paul giving his testimony in defence twice more. He's already done in Jerusalem. And let's get the main people straight. This is down in... With this extremely simplified family tree. Even if you look at the simplified family tree in some Bible commentaries, it's the Herodian family was extremely um, mixed and there was a lot of intermarriage and cousin marriage and multiple marriages but the people you might have heard of Herod the Great top of the screen who was the guy who uh, ordered the slaughter of the toddlers in Bethlehem the one that the wise men went to see so he had a grandson called Herod Agrippa and he's the guy who imprisoned Peter We've already met him way back in Acts, when he was 12. And Herod Agrippa had some children. And one of them is called Agrippa, and we meet him today. Another girl, her daughter was Berenice. And he had a, a, another daughter called Winston. This is not totally spelled out in Acts. Drusilla was actually married to Felix, who was the Roman governor. And that's, that's, this is, that's extremely simplified family tree, believe me. This lot were in mess. And um, Felix and Festus, who we're going to meet, were Roman governors. They were much like um, Pilate, if you know the story of Jesus' crucifixion. Judea was a Roman province and had governors. And the Herod family were kind of more or less Jewish. There was a lot of intermixture and so on. And in effect, they were puppet kings of the Romans. It's the simplest sort of way to probably put it. And here are some coins from Felix's time as governor. So here we are, it's 59 AD and we are about to meet. Let's see what happened with Paul and Felix and onwards. So five days later, the high priest Ananias went down to Caesarea with some of the elders and a lawyer named Tertullus. I should say we're in Acts 24 if you're following along in your Bible on your and they brought their charges against Paul before the governor. When Paul was called in, Tertullus presented his case before Felix. We have enjoyed a long period of peace, and your foresight has brought about reforms in this nation. Everywhere and in every way, most excellent Felix, we acknowledge this with profound gratitude. But in order not to weary you further, I would request that you be kind enough to hear us briefly. We have found this man to be a troublemaker, stirring up riots among the Jews all over the world. He is a ringleader of the Nazarene sect 
and even tried to desecrate the temple. So we seized him. If you examine him yourself, you'll be able to learn the truth about all these charges that we're bringing against him. The other Jews joined in the accusation, asserting that these things were true. Yes, that's totally right. Don't you all agree? We all know that he's a troublemaker and a, mm -hmm. yeah, we need to really do something. Yes, don't you? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, when the governor motioned for him to speak, Paul replied. I know that for a number of years you have been a judge over this election, so I gladly make my defence. I believe everything that is in accordance with the law and that is written in the prophets. And I have the same hope in God as these men themselves have, that there will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. So I strive always to keep my conscience clear before God and man. After an absence of several years, I came to Jerusalem to bring my people gifts for the poor and to present offerings. I was ceremonially clean when they found me in the temple courts doing this. There was no crowd with me, nor was I involved in any disturbance, but there are some Jews from the province of Asia who ought to be here before you today and bring charges if they have anything against me. And these who are here should state what crime they found me in when I stood before the Sanhedrin. Unless it is the one thing I shouted as I stood in their presence. It is concerning the resurrection of the dead that I'm, I am on trial before you today. Then Felix, who was well account, acquainted with the way, adjourned the proceedings. When Lysias the commander comes, I will decide your case. He ordered the centurion to keep Paul under guard, but to give him some freedom and to permit his friends to take care of his needs. And several days later, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish. And as we've just observed, she was a daughter in the Herod family herself. He sent for Paul and listened to him as he spoke about faith in Christ Jesus. As Paul talked about righteousness, self-control, and judgment to come, Felix was afraid. That's enough for now. You may leave. When I find it convenient, I will send for you. At the same time, he was hoping that Paul would offer him a bribe. So he sent for him frequently and talked with him. And we can see from this, Felix might well be afraid. His life was by no means righteous. And there's there's in all sorts of interesting information about Felix in other writings. And he had some knowledge of the way, the Christian way. Tacitus, the Roman historian, said of him that he exercised the authority of a king with the mind of a slave. He was well known for his disregard for justice and his greed, which comes out in this passage where he says he's hoping that if he sees Paul enough, Paul will be worn down and slip him some silver. Um, he actually came from a low social origin and he owed his position to his brother's influence with the Emperor Claudius. And all his interactions with Paul are typical of his way of ruling. 
which included great cruelty sorry, <coughs> in putting down riots. And this is why he actually was recalled within the next couple of years. And so, verse 27, when two years had passed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus. But because Felix wanted to grant a favour to the Jews, he left Paul in prison. And here are some coins from Festus's time. Three days after arriving in the province, Festus went up from Caesarea to Jerusalem, where the chief priests and the Jewish leaders appeared before him and presented the charges against Paul. They requested Festus as a favour to them to have Paul transferred to Jerusalem, for they were preparing an ambush, they hadn't given up, had they, to kill him along the way. Festus All is being held at Caesarea, and I myself am going there soon. Let some of your leaders come with me, and if the man has done anything wrong, they can press charges against him there. So after spending eight or ten days with them, Festus went down to Caesarea. The next day he convened the court and ordered that Paul be brought before him. When Paul came in, the Jews who had come down from Jerusalem stood around him. They brought many serious charges against him, but they could not prove them. And this is the um, amphitheatre at Caesarea. And thanks to Mary and Michael Wood, who were here last week, who've been there. That's their photo, Michael's photo of that. And they were told on their tour of that that it was possible that this was the arena in which Paul made his speech. Then Paul made his defence. I have done nothing wrong against the Jewish law or against the temple or against Caesar. Festus, wishing to do the Jews a favour, said to Paul, Are you willing to go up to Jerusalem and stand trial before me there on these charges? I am now standing before Caesar's court, where I ought to be tried. I have not done any wrong to the Jews, as you yourself know very well. If, however, I am guilty of doing anything deserving death, I do not refuse to die. But if the charges brought against me by these Jews are not true, no one has the right to hand me over to them. I appeal to Caesar. After Festus had conferred with his counsel, he declared... You have appealed to Caesar. To Caesar you will go. You have to wonder whether this was almost part of Paul's plan all along. He believed the Lord was leading him to Rome, we've seen in chapter 23, and earlier when he wrote the book to the Romans, the letter to the Romans, he said, I plan to come and see you. So maybe he saw this was a way to get there. So, enter King Agrippa. Verse 13. After a few days later, King Agrippa and Bernice, who were brother and sister, um, there's some coins from his um, reign as well, arrived at Caesarea to pay their respects to Festus. And Festus, like um, Felix and Pilate, for that matter, were perplexed by the was perplexed by the complexities of the Jewish religious um, arguments and so on. Really, wasn't up with all the latest of their theology. And since they were spending many days there, Festus discussed Paul's case with the king. He said, There is a man here whom Felix left as a prisoner. When I went to Jerusalem, the chief priests and the elders of the Jews brought charges against him and asked that he be condemned. I told them it is not the Roman custom to hand over anyone before they have faced their accusers and have had the opportunity to defend themselves against the charges. When they came here with me, I did not delay the case, 
but convened the court the next day and ordered the man to be brought in. When his accusers got up to speak, they did not charge him with any of the crimes I'd expected. In fact, they had some points of dispute with him about their own religion and about a dead, name, man, a dead man named Jesus, whom Paul claimed was alive. I was at a loss how to investigate these matters, so I asked if he'd be willing to go to Jerusalem and stand trial there on these charges. But when Paul made his appeal to be held over to the Emperor's decision, I ordered him to be held until I could send him to Caesar. I'd like to hear this man myself. Tomorrow you will hear him. The next day, Agrippa and Bernice came with great pomp and entered the audience room with the high-ranking military officers and the prominent men of the city. Think how daunting that scene might be. At the command of Festus, Paul was brought in. Festus said, King Agrippa and all who are present with us, you see this man? The whole Jewish community has petitioned me about him in Jerusalem and here in Caesarea, shouting that he ought not to live any longer. I found he had done nothing deserving of death, but because he made his appeal to the emperor, I decided to send him to Rome. But I have nothing definite to write to his majesty about him. Therefore I have brought him all before you, and especially before you, King Agrippa, so that as a result of this investigation, I may have something to write. For I think it's unreasonable to send a prisoner on to Rome without specifying the charges against him. Paul, you have permission to speak for yourself. King Agrippa, I consider myself fortunate to stand before you today as I make my defence against all the accusations of the Jews, and especially so because you are well acquainted with all the Jewish customs and controversies. Therefore, I beg you, listen to me patiently. The Jewish people all know the way I have lived ever since I was a child, from the beginning of my life, in my own country and also in Jerusalem. They have known me for a long time and they can testify, if they are willing, that I conform to the stricter sect of our religion, living as a Pharisee. And now it is because of my hope in what God has promised our ancestors that I am on trial today. No, I keep going. <clears throat> This is the promise our twelve tribes are hoping to see fulfilled as they earnestly serve God day and night. King Agrippa, it is because of this hope that these Jews are accusing me. Why should any, why should any of you consider it incredible that God raises the dead? Now, I too was convinced that I ought to do all that was possible to oppose the name of Jesus of Nazareth. And that is just what I did in Jerusalem. On the authority of the chief priests, I put many of the Lord's people in prison. And when they were put to death, I cast my vote against them. Many a time I went from one synagogue to another to have them punished, and I tried to force them to blaspheme with persecuting. I was so obsessed with persecuting them that I even hunted them down in foreign cities. But, one not, but on one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus, with the authority and the commission of the chief priest. And it was about noon, King Agrippa, round about the middle of the day, I was on the road and I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground. And I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, 
Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It, it is hard for you to kick against the goads. Then I said, who are you, Lord? Who are you? I am Jesus, whom you're persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to appoint you as a servant and as a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. Now I will rescue you from your own people, the Jews, and from the Gentiles. I am sending you to them to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place amongst those who are sanctified by faith in me. So then, King Agrippa, I was not disobedient to that vision from heaven. First to those in Damascus I went, then those in Jerusalem, and all in Judea, and then I went to the Gentiles. I preached that they should repent and turn to God and demonstrate their repentance by their deeds. That is why some Jews seized me in the temple courts and tried to kill me. But God has helped me to this very day. So I stand here before you and testify to small and great alike. I'm saying nothing more than what the prophets said or Moses should happen. That the Messiah would suffer and as the first to rise from the dead would bring the message of light to his own people and to the Gentiles. At this point, Festus interrupted. You're out of your mind, Paul. Your great learning has driven you insane. I am not insane, most excellent Festus. I am not insane. What I am saying is true and it's reasonable. The king is familiar with all these things and I can speak freely to him. I am convinced that none of this has escaped his notice because it was not done secretly in a corner. King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know you do. Do you think that in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? Short time or long, I pray to God that not only you, but all who are listening here today will become what I am, except for these chains on my arms. The king rose, and with him the governor and Bernice and those sitting with them. After they left the room, they began saying to one another, You guys. <laughs> This man is not doing anything that deserves death or imprisonment. And Agrippa said to Festus, This man could have been set free if he had not appealed to Caesar. Isn't it sad that Agrippa, who had some head knowledge of the Jewish prophets and knew a little of Christianity because he had lived through the years of its growth in the areas that he ruled, he was a child when the Lord was crucified, but through the intervening 25 or so years, um, Christianity had spread, as Paul had said, and he could not have failed to notice what was happening around him. And um, the, it, it's very sad where he said, do you think in such a short time you can persuade me to be a Christian? He clearly knew something of the Jewish, um, well, he, he was Jewish himself, and he knew something of the Jewish religion. And it would have cost him far too much in worldly terms to have agreed with Paul about the Lord Jesus. So the other thing I think that's really interesting leading on to the next part where they do go to Rome, get to Rome, is that I think it's likely that in, during Paul's two years in prison at Caesarea that Luke had travelled around Judea obtaining much of his information for the gospel and the early part of Acts. This is my 
it's not quite speculation, it's next door to it, I suppose. He may well have been present during Paul's defence and taking notes, which give us the vivid exchanges we've just witnessed between Paul and Felix, Festus and Agrippa. Thank you to the Roman and Jewish people. Um, okay, so, map. And here we get this where Luke is clearly, um, was probably already there, but he says, when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius, who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. We boarded a ship from Adramitium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. And if you remember from a couple of weeks ago, Aristarchus and quite a crew left Asia um, with Paul, and I don't know whether any others were it doesn't sound like any of the others were there except for Aristarchus. The next day we landed at Sidon, you can see that on the map, and Julius, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so they might provide for his needs. That's the second time we've heard that, and we'll hear it again. Um, bear in mind that in ancient times, if you're a prisoner, it's not like the state is going to pay for you. You can languish in a dungeon for all they care. It's like in some countries um, nowadays, and even in hospitals in some countries, you need friends to bring in food and whatever else you need. And the other interesting point is I read in a commentary is that in the New Testament, almost every reference to a centurion is positive. They come across as basically fair-minded and um, decent people. Think of the centurion at the cross and also the one whose son was um, um, brought back to life and people like that. Okay. Anyway, so they had their needs supplied and from there we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus so they went the other side of Cyprus because the winds were against us when we'd sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia modern-day Turkey we landed at Myra in Lycia there the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Cnidus here in the middle and when the wind did not allow us to hold our course, we sailed to the lee of Crete, opposite Salmone. We moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fair Havens near the town of Lycia. Much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the Day of Atonement. Now, the Day of Atonement is usually in September or October and I am informed from reading F.F. Bruce that that year it was in the first week of October. That's getting very late. That's winter, getting towards winter in the Northern Hemisphere. And the winds, as we've already read, were against them. They'll be struggling. And so um, Paul warned them. Men, I can see it that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our own lives as well. But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, fairly reasonably in my view, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbour was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbour in Crete, facing both southwest and northwest, so they just want to move along a bit in Crete and get to better shelter. When a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity, so they weighed anchor and sailed along the coast of Crete shore of Crete. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force 
called the Northeaster, swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Corda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. Then they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Wooden ship, of course, need to hold those lengthy boards together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. And I'll tell you what, I bet Luke did not throw his notes overboard. Just speaking as a historian. Um, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. After they'd gone a long time without food, Paul stood up before them and said, Listen, men. You should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Nothing like a bit of I told you so. Go on. <laughs> then you would have spared yourself all this loss and damage. But now I urge you to keep up your courage because none of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Now I say this because last night an angel of God to whom I belong and whom I serve stood beside me and he said, Paul, do not be afraid. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all those who sail in the ship with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island somewhere. On the 14th night, we were still being driven across the Adriatic Sea, when about midnight the sailors sensed they were approaching land. They took soundings and found the water was 120 feet deep. A short time later they took soundings again and found it was 90 feet deep. Fearing that they would be, we would be dashed against the rocks, they dropped four anchors from the stern and prayed for daylight. In an attempt to escape from the ship, the sailors let the lifeboat down into the sea, pretending they were going to lower anchors from the bow. Then Paul said to the centurion and the sailors, Unless these men stay with the ship, you will not be saved. So the soldiers cut the ropes that held the lifeboat and let it drift away. Just before dawn, Paul urged them all to eat. For the last 14 days, you've been in constant suspense and you've gone without food. You haven't eaten anything in 14 days. So now I urge you to take some food. You'll need it to survive. And But not one of you will lose a single hair from your head. After he said this, he took some bread and gave thanks to God in front of them all. Then he broke it and began to eat. They were all encouraged and ate some food themselves. Altogether, there were 276 of us on board. When they had eaten as much as they wanted, they lightened the ship by throwing the grain into the sea. When daylight came, came they did not recognise the land, but they saw a bay with, sand, with a sandy beach where they decided to run the ship aground if they could. Cutting loose the anchors, they left them in the sea and at the same time untied the ropes that held the rudders. Then they hoisted the foresail to the wind and made for the beach. But the ship struck a sandbar and ran aground. The bow stuck fast and would not move and the stern was broken to pieces by the pounding of the surf. The soldiers planned to kill the prisoners to prevent any of them from swimming away and escaping. 
quite sure where they thought they'd swim too, but anyway. The centurion wanted to spare Paul's life and kept them from carrying out their plan. He ordered those who could swim to jump overboard first and get to land. The rest were to get there on planks or on other pieces of the ship, and in this way everyone reached land safely. This is called St Paul's Bay on Malta, because that's where they were. The next verse says, once safely on shore, we found that the island was called Malta. There's the sandy bit that they talk about, the sand, it's now very, um, it looks quite a glamorous. Um, there were also the pictures of people sunbathing on the beach with high-rise um, apartments behind them, and that didn't look quite so um, first century, so I didn't do a picture of that, but you can easily find it. And they're on Malta. The islanders showed us unusual kindness. Because sometimes islanders weren't that kind to shipwrecked people. They robbed them and killed them and got stuff that they brought with them. They built a fire and welcomed us all because it was raining and cold. Paul gathered a pile of brushwood and as he put it on the fire, a viper, driven out by the heat, fastened itself on his hand. When the islanders saw the snake hanging from his hand, they said to each other, Ah, this man must be a murderer. Look at that. For though he escaped from the sea, our goddess Justice has not allowed him to live. He's going to keel over pretty soon now. Just watch. <laughs> but Paul shook the snake off into the fire and suffered no ill effects. The people expected him to wow. swell up or suddenly fall dead. But after waiting a long time and seeing nothing unusual happen to him, they changed their minds and said he was a god. There was an estate nearby that belonged to Publius, the chief official of the island. He welcomed us to his home and showed us generous hospitality for three days. His father was sick in bed, suffering from fever and dysentery. Paul went in to see him and after prayer, placed his hands on him and healed him. When this had happened, the rest of the sick on the island came and were cured. They honoured us in many ways and when we were ready to sail, they furnished us with the supplies we needed. Again. So after three months, by this stage where this voyage has taken about five months by my estimation, we put out to sea in a ship that had wintered in the island. It was an Alexandrian ship with the figurehead of the twin gods Castor and Pollux. We put in at Syracuse okay, and stayed there three days. From there we set sail and arrived at Regium. The next day the south wind came up. Right direction and on the following day we reached Puteoli. Some, this, there we found some brothers and sisters who invited us to spend a week with them. Puteoli is in the Bay of Naples, these are the ruins there now. Um, what an encouragement to meet some brothers and sisters and it shows how the gospel had spread to Italy without the apostles as far as we know getting there before this time. The gospel had already spread and so they were encouraged and they spent the week with them and no doubt kept on recovering from their very dangerous adventures. And so then Luke says, and so we came to Rome. What relief. Luke must have written that sentence with what relief. However, the brothers and sisters there had heard that we were coming and they travelled as far as the Forum of Appius and the three taverns to meet us. At the sight of these people, Paul thanked God and was encouraged. Now this is the Appian Way. It still exists in a lot of places. It goes from the south, right down the south where they were, to Rome. 
Um, this is a picture I took a couple of years ago, <laughs> on a day of blinding heat. The, it would not have looked, wouldn't have been as, that looks very bumpy for a Roman road. It would have had more gravel in between and then be covered with uh, actual um, surface that chariots and so on could go on much more smoothly. And that's me standing very happily. Somewhere there where we know that Paul and Aristarchus and Luke um, travelled along that road and we know that the Christians came out to meet them from there. Um, it's very moving to stand somewhere like that where you know these people were nearly 2,000 years ago. Paul had written to these Roman Christians a couple of years earlier and nothing, it's nothing quite like meeting Christians in unexpected or strange places. And I hope that lots of you have had that experience. There's an old hymn that says, Blessed be the tie that binds our hearts in Christian love. And so Paul came to Rome with encouragement, knowing there were people who would there back him up as well. And when we got to Rome, and Luke and Aristarchus, Paul was allowed to live by himself with a soldier to guard him. So it was house arrest. He wasn't in sort of a dungeon or anything. Three days later, didn't waste much time, he called together the local Jewish leaders, as he did in every place he went to. When they had assembled, Paul said to them, My Christian brothers, although No, they're I, not Christians, they're Jewish. David, don't him. My Jewish. My Jewish. <laughs> Jewish. Going. My Jewish brothers. <laughs> yeah. Oh, there was the Jews, yeah. yeah. Although I've done nothing against our people or against the customs of our ancestors, I was arrested in Jerusalem and handed over to the Romans. They examined me and wanted to release me because I was not guilty of any crime deserving death. The Jews objected to this, so I was compelled to make an appeal to Caesar. I certainly did not intend to bring any charge against my own people. For this reason, I have asked to see you and talk with you. It is because of the hope of Israel that I am bound with these chains. Hmm. Well, that sounds very interesting. We, we haven't received any letters from Judea concerning you, and none of our people who have come from there has reported or said anything bad against you. But we want to hear what your views are, for we know that people everywhere are talking about this sect, so we're interested to hear about it. Mm -hmm. And it says they're talking against this sect, and Tacitus, the Roman historian, writes that the Christians were a class hated for their abominations and that they were a mischievous superstition. That's a Roman writing, let alone what the Jewish people thought. So they arranged to meet Paul on a certain day and came in even larger numbers to the place where he was staying. He witnessed to them from morning till evening explaining about the kingdom of God and from the law of Moses and from the prophets he tried to persuade them about Jesus. Some were convinced by what he said, but others would not believe. They disagreed among themselves and began to leave after Paul had made this final statement. The Holy Spirit spoke the truth to your ancestors when he said through the Isaiah the prophet, Go to this people and say, You will be ever hearing but never understanding. You will be ever seeing but never perceiving. For this people's heart has become calloused. They hardly hear with their ears and they have closed their eyes. Otherwise they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, and understand with their hearts, and turn, and I would heal them. Therefore, I want you to know that God's salvation has been sent to the Gentiles, and they will listen. Mm -hmm. 
for two whole years. Paul stayed there in his own rented house and welcomed all who came to see him. He proclaimed the kingdom of God and taught about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. And so we come to the end of Luke's story of the first 30 years of the Christian church. From Rome, Paul wrote several of the letters we treasure in the New Testament, such as Colossians and Philippians and so on. In Rome, he met um, Onesimus, the runaway slave, and sent him back to Philemon. Um, it does seem likely that he was released eventually, and as we have seen all, all through Acts, and certainly in this last um, four chapters, nothing stopped him spreading the good news of the Lord Jesus. And so here we are, nearly 2,000 years later, because of Paul and Aristarchus and Luke and all the people, Silas, Mark, all the people who went with them and who spread the news, the good news of the Lord Jesus so widely. Thank you. <laughs>